Hello and welcome to another episode of Thinking Critically, a D&D discussion. My name is Danilo, a D&D guy, and I like all kinds of games and the crunchy mechanics that make them tick. Today I'm joined by my first guest from outside the UK, Kareem, aka Fever Dream Studios. Thank you ever so much for coming on. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, it's, uh, it's my pleasure to be here. I am an adventure writer. I am a Twitch streamer. And playing D&D, running D&D, it's a, a newer hobby of mine. I picked it up around three years ago um, when I was in university. Some of my friends were asking around, hey, does anybody want to play D&D? And I said, you know what? I'd like to try it. I had played uh, GURPS before, but that was my first time playing D&D. I spent about a year and a half as a, a diehard min-maxer. <laughs> uh, before before I saw the light of other ways of play. And since that time, I've been writing my own adventures for publishing and uh, for running just for my friends, and I've been having a blast. Oh, awesome. That's a uh, yeah, really good introduction. I, I probably got into it maybe slightly later than if I was looking at myself from a, a third party, maybe later than I would have anticipated, but I'm, I'm very glad I have, and I do have quite an obsessive personality. And when I like something i'm really all in no holds barred and and D, D is no different you mentioned there about you played gurps before and you started with a, a diehard min maxer personality and i think it can be the case for a lot of players when they first come to D, &D say okay let me try and optimize my character mm -hmm. optimizing is maybe the the less cynical way of saying a min maxer so in terms mm -hmm. of do you think that there's any elements of the design of D&D, &D, maybe 5e for the sake of argument, that encourages min-maxing or optimization over roleplay? I think so. What's interesting to me is that my experiences with GURPS were just messing around, having fun with my friends. Honestly, when I was playing GURPS, to be honest, I didn't even know the rules. I, I showed up, <laughs> I, I was told a premise, hey, do you want to be a, a character in some crazy, wacky world with magic. I was like, hey, can I be Davy Jones? <laughs> yep, you can be <laughs> Davy Jones. Perfect, great. And then I fell in love with that character. Mm. When I went over to D&D, &D, my friend who introduced it to me, he said, you know what, it's very important that you make a character in advance because that takes a bit of time. We're going to sit down, we're going to make a character, we're going to read from the player's handbook. I said, okay, wonderful. So I, I started making my character with him and we were reading over the player's handbook and I think what influenced me is that, well, one, he spent a, a fair bit of time talking about, about combat, but I think also there is a very big part of the player's handbook that deals with combat. And mm -hmm. if you're reading that before you play, then I think it forms an impression that combat is maybe the, the, the pinnacle of D&D. Like, good combat is good D&D, &D, and if you're good at combat, you're good at D&D. &D. Mm, yeah, and, and likewise for spells, actually, a, a large percentage of the, the the player's handbook is dedicated to spells as you'd expect there's a lot of them and they need a mm -hmm. lot of words and stuff around them so it's kind of a given but still exactly as you say if you approach it from well hey there's a lot of spells and, and an awful lot of gritty mechanics around combat here i have to assume that's important let me build my character with that as the first step and then when you actually start playing in, in session one and the dm says what drink do you want at the bar oh uh, I don't know, the drink that makes me hit someone harder? <laughs> <laughs> so I can see how that's, yeah, it could be quite a common 
pitfall and i've seen it in the game i'm running right now which has a lot of first timers predominantly first timers predominantly of those have zero experience with anything anywhere near this and a lot of their characters are a mix of optimized some more than others or just kind of this middle ground of ambiguity for lack of a better term around what they wanted to focus on Mm -hmm. so i guess we could say in in that regard perhaps the php is somewhat lacking in in how it's designed potentially there's a there's a lot of good standout points but i'm certainly think there's room for improvement but it's it's a i mean i don't envy the (laughs) the writers and designers let me put it like that It's it's an uphill battle Right. And it's not to say that the player's handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide don't have wonderful mm-hmm. things to, to learn by, by reading them regarding topics that aren't combat. It's just, I think, by volume. You know, if, mm-hmm. if people are, are reading it and they, they're just sort of skimming it, they see combat, and all, you know, they pay attention to that. And there's only a small passage on role playing or whatnot. So you, you maybe don't pay as close attention to it. For sure. Yeah, they're they're intimidating reads, certainly, for those that have come from, well, you know, gone are the days where even video games had manuals. I mean, I remember vividly (laughs) getting the train home with my World of Warcraft 200 page A5 manual and reading that on the train. And that those days are long behind us now. So the moment you rock up to play another game and go, oh, by the way, there's 300 pages of A4 here, plus maybe a further (laughs) 600 if you fancy it. It's like, whoa, okay, (laughs) steady on. What's I just want to. I don't know, roll some dice. Would you mind explaining a little bit more about GURPS? Because to, to be honest, I'm not very familiar, but I think it might be quite a useful exercise. Mm-hmm. Well, it's unfortunately, it's been a long time since I've played GURPS. So my, mm. my memory on it is a bit vague, but uh, GURPS stands for the Generic Universal Role-Playing System. Mm. It's not a D20-based system. It's a D6-based system. So you have to, to roll a certain number of dice, uh, depending on your character sheet, the more proficient you are at something the more dice you have and then rolling a five or six is considered a success uh-huh. yes. and you need a certain number of successes that's the general mechanical framework i know that there are a variety of other modules for gurps in other settings there's a star wars gurps source book for you to run star wars adventures in the within the gurps framework so in, mm-hmm. in that sense it's a bit more open and flexible but my actual Exposure to the rules was <laughs> very limited. I just wanted to play Davy Jones. <laughs> mm, sure, sure. Yeah, you had a, you had an idea and you wanted to run with it, which is which is great. I'm pretty sure I've played either, you know, at GURPS itself or a very similar system of that. Okay, if you're rubbish at something, you you can only roll one, and if you're great at something, you can roll five. Therefore, you've pretty much got it in the bag. The simplicity speaks for itself. One thing I wanted to talk about was. Obviously, we've already talked about the player's handbook a little bit. And one thing I really wanted to stress and one thing I stressed to my my players and my my friends is that the language used in terms of it's an element of design, just in the same way the art is an element of design, that the words that they've picked are pretty well done. I have to say it's dense, but it's consistent which is very important. So something I tell my players and my friends is you've got big A and you've got little A. Big A is the action. And a little A is for action with a lowercase a at the beginning. And that is a huge differentiation in the rules. Mm -hmm. Such a subtle change in is it an uppercase A or is it a lowercase A? But it means Mm -hmm. such a huge difference. And when I spotted that 
and then you see everywhere you see little a means this and capital a means that mm-hmm. i was like, actually fair play that's actually a really good job at being exceptionally consistent to something mm-hmm. that's kind of hard to spot and also likewise with the spells so this is something i've butted heads with my players on a number of occasions when mm-hmm. they've said i want to use spell x but i want to use it in this way and that is really tough for me to say no because i know in my heart of hearts that spell isn't they don't intend for it to be used in that way the Mm -hmm. wording is is the designer's intent for that spell is really clear Mm -hmm. in the wording so i'm always like man i I really want to commend you on your ingenuity here player but if i let you do that with that spell then suddenly i have to let someone else do something else with some other spell and then suddenly every spell is every other spell so that was that was that was quite interesting an example in the recent game was a player had burning hands and they were faced with a locked chest pretty mundane nothing exotic uh, wizard in this case and they had not packed in their book in the morning knock which is the spell to unlock something at the flick of your wrist so he said let me use burning hands but because i'm a wizard i want to change the spell so it can be used like a blowtorch and we spent a good five minutes me trying to explain to him ah, just no because there's a spell for that and it's it's not on me that you haven't packed that that's on you but he didn't see it that way he just saw it as i'm a genius wizard so why on earth can't i change my spell to do this and i think he he was a little bit frustrated but i can't fault the design of the book for that because (laughs) the book is really on point so i don't know if you've had any any thoughts on that any experiences around you know how people have interpreted the book or, or the language used within I, I I would agree with you. Uh, I do think that the language in the book is well done. I think with any linguistic endeavor, there's always room for interpretation. Mm-hmm. I think that point is, is really personified when you look at the people who are tweeting at uh, Jeremy Crawford. You know, one, mm-hmm. one, one yes. particular example regarding actions that you mentioned uh, that, mm. that sticks out to me is I remember that in one of the sage advice tweets that I believe made it into the compendium as well, when it comes to the incapacitated condition or or mm. any condition that says you can't take actions, there is a word with a capital A called action, mm. but that's mm. not the only thing you're not allowed to do when you can't take actions lowercase. You also can't take reactions or bonus actions. Mm. So I, I see where they're coming from, and I'm glad the clarification exists. Mm-hmm. When it comes yeah. to spells, the natural instinct is for people you know, to to try and get as much value as you can out of out of your spell, and understandably so. The challenge that I think you've touched on is is that spells are supposed to do what 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 they say. If you step out of that, you start to invalidate other options. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're not too concerned about a mechanically balanced game, then, you know, go for it. If you want to play mm-hmm. D&D to, you know, be silly and get into all kinds of crazy situations and, and just keep it flowing, there's no problem with doing that. Sure. If you want to try and keep things balanced, stick to the, the spirit of the rules, which in of itself is an attempt to make everybody feel useful. Mm-hmm. If the wizard is going around 
casting spells and, and doing all kinds of things that step out of the bounds of the spells that they've chosen, it starts to step on other characters' toes mm. as well. You know, what if somebody else had prepared the spell knock? You know, that would that would have been their time to, to mm. shine. Exactly. And hands up, yeah, that, that's my own personal kind of analytical nature taking over me there to say, you know, the spells should be used the way they should be used. But I I do agree that absolutely, if you just want a goofy adventure, which I'm <laughs> guilty of myself in the past, then yeah, for sure, just, just, just go ahead. But absolutely, especially with new players, I really wanted to set an expectation. It's for a longer campaign as well. And it's, it's, it, it can be a bit of a give them an inch and they'll take a mile when I was trying to avoid that but on the the other side of the coin I had another player who was just via his own personality almost rather than for any kind of material gain was just trying to be better in every element of his character Mm -hmm. in that he was like okay but I'm a blood hunter barbarian multi-class so absolutely bonkers in the, the martial arts as a frontline tank he's he's laughing all the way to the bank and he's happy with not casting spells that's fine but he said i have a problem with with creatures that fly so he started to devise a plan to say let me build some kind of hook shot uh, a rope with a hook on the end that i can throw out and pull flyers down to the ground mm-hmm. said, that's a that's a dope idea and i'm totally behind it but i have to set your expectation to say it won't be trivial to do because the rogue who's got 901 daggers that he likes throwing at flying creatures he's just going to be kicking the dust while you just pull them down to ground and just womp them for 20 points of damage mm-hmm. so it's it's exactly that that's certainly how i play in that i want it i kind of want everybody to have at least a little bit of a time to shine mm-hmm. and, uh, and i said to him like you, you can't be good at everything sorry because in real life not, not one person is good at absolutely everything mm-hmm. or if they are <laughs> they're so few and far between that they become legend mm-hmm. if i may comment uh, on that particular example but please it's it's actually quite interesting uh, a proposition there are barbarians who can fly essentially yes. you know yes. there are barbarians who they can jump and as far as long as un- until the end of their turn they're flying you know you want to <laughs> jump 50 feet get up 50 feet attack people and then fall to the ground so maybe this person has chosen the wrong barbarian subclass option mm. maybe you you want to not punish them for their for their barbarian subclass choice and you say okay sure you can have a grappling rope but it's one action to grapple them and then pull them down and then on yep. your next turn you might be able to attack and in the meantime maybe the rogue can deal massive sneak attack damage to other flyers or even the same mm-hmm. one yeah, there there are lots of ways of, of going about it and, and balancing it, balancing your players' experiences mm-hmm. is, it's tough. Uh, it, it's something mm-hmm. that, you know, DMs have to learn to apply their own judgment towards. Mm-hmm. Every set of players is different and has their own preconceptions and obviously it only gets exacerbated when you have a mixture of mechanical players and goofy players and mm-hmm. then you're you're in for a wild ride then to say the least so talking of as a, as a good segue there to homebrew because as far as i'm aware that kind of weird manual hook shot was relatively homebrew so my question to you would be and you'll have, have a lot more experience than i do how does one start to homebrew anything do you start big do you start small 
You know, that's that's a <laughs> that's a good question. I think the the quick answer is to just start. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. When it comes to to homebrew, I started off by running my own setting, my own adventure, designing my own combat encounters, but based off of mechanics that exist already and that were rules as written. So, for mm-hmm. example, all the monsters that I used were from the monster manual or from another official source. Mm-hmm. Any items or, or mechanics or anything that the players could do, it was from you know the player's handbook or another source book. Mm-hmm. The story, the adventure elements, the design of the environment, the world, the setting, that was me. And mm-hmm. I think that that's the way that I would advocate for people to start mm. if they're concerned about game balance. Because I was concerned about game balance. And the Wizards of the Coast, they're professional game designers. They sure. they have years of experience. They had lots of playtesting. And they understand game balance already better than you do probably if you're just mm. starting out homebrewing for the first time. If you're concerned about balance, stick to the rules as written until you understand them and understand how they're balanced. Mm-hmm. And then you can start tinkering with them. My plan is to make minor adjustments. And then every step, you know, that I feel comfortable, I'm going to make larger and larger adjustments. If you don't care about game balance, which I'm not trying to trying to slam or anything like that, then I think you have a bit more liberty to go crazy. But I think with design, and I, I come from a chemical engineering background, so mm-hmm. d- design is very much <laughs> what was taught to us. Mm. Uh, you have to understand what they call the problem space, the context of whatever you're trying to design. And in D&D, the context is your audience, your players. Or if you're publishing adventures, then you're trying to publish to a very broad, you know, generic D&D audience. And so you have to consider to yourself, what kind of game do I want to run? What kind of game am I going to have fun running? And what kind of game do my players want to run, to experience? Mm. I think that going for <laughs> a game that cares about game balance is, is a safer play, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, you're saying, I trust in the Wizards of the Coast's judgment. Yeah. yeah. I agree, and that's exactly what I did. I, for some reason, had a desire to step away from the published adventures, and I couldn't tell you now why that is. Maybe if I'm being completely frank with myself, it's arrogance that i wanted to i wanted to do my own thing (laughs) and and my own thing would be more fun very much exactly the same i said let me start throwing things down let me start throwing some ideas down some concepts some some broad brush strokes of this is the bad guy this is the good guy here's a couple of heavy points that i want to hit along the way in this world and hit up fantasy name generator get some cities and continent names down and bish bash bosh I've got something, a world. From personal experience, that was a lot. That was a lot. Probably more than I'd anticipated. But from a learning experience, it's huge. Absolutely huge learning experience. If I was to restart a campaign now, it would be quite drastically different in terms of how I approached the the story. In terms of the rules, again, I am, as you've, as you've previously realized, a, a very mechanical person, analytical person, very true to the 
what was the phrase you used the intent of the rules or something like that mm-hmm. it's the i'm very, very much a big fan of that and that they put that in there for a reason and they know better than i do so i'm gonna defer to their wisdom the wisdom of the wizards which, which sounds like a which sounds like a great module title um <laughs> trademark trademark that one i've got that <laughs> got the time if i'm being brutally honest the homebrew that i personally do is a a story and the world that the story goes in which is very narrative rather than very mechanical the only mechanical homebrew i do is ad hoc it's on the fly it's reactive rather than proactive so what i mean by that is my characters are cakewalking this fight and it's i can i tell at the time whether that's good or bad so if the players are happy that they're stomping all over these enemies then i'm gonna let it happen because that, that's the fun let, let them have fun let them stomp over enemies that's fine but if it's a big climatic fight and they've rolled very well then my dynamic reactive homebrew in that instance is okay let me pump up let me pump up his hp let me let him hit a little bit harder for the next few times which is a form of homebrew i suppose if it was by the book it it would just be a bit of a damp squib and it would end and that <laughs> would be the end of the uh, end of the fight but i hadn't really thought about it in that way if i'm being brutally honest i always thought it was just me trying to pick up the the spinning plate that i dropped but now i think about it it is it is a form of homebrew yeah yeah uh, you're you're absolutely right it it is a form of homebrew for me the first time i i ran an adventure is very different from the one I'm running right now for my friends. Mm-hmm. And it's it's quite funny because I'm actually running, in name, the same adventure, uh, mm-hmm. the same setting. But I have learned a lot <laughs> since the first time <laughs> I DM'd, and, and there's a lot that has changed. Mm-hmm. I feel pretty comfortable now with designing combat encounters around the Wizards of the Coast existing frameworks. I... I mm-hmm. I have my own thoughts on magic items and and how they affect game balance. And now that I have this understanding, I feel comfortable homebrewing my own magic items. And this is actually something I'm Mm. I'm planning on doing tomorrow, actually. And I, I might make some content regarding this, but my view on magic items is that Obviously, players want magic items. Mm -hmm. And for me as a DM, balancing combat around players that have magic items is more of a challenge than if if they don't have magic items. Um, So that's why I gravitated towards a low magic setting for the first adventure that I'm running, if I'm being honest. A bit of a a selfish choice. (laughs) But but completely understandable. Selfish, (laughs) but understandable. Well, well, thank you. (laughs) But now that I... I feel more comfortable with it. I think there's room in D&D for minor buffs in the form of, of magic. And, and, and they already exist. If you look at, at how the DMG talks about rewarding item, uh, rewarding players, consumables are considered less powerful than yeah. magic armor, for example, and, and understandably so. Mm-hmm. I think there is more room or there is room for more in between you know um something that's not quite as one shot as a potion but not Mm -hmm. quite as forever as an armor that lets you fly right (laughs) yeah i guess what inspired me to do this is in Baldur's gate descend into avernus Mm -hmm. it talks about different charms that archdevils can give you if you make deals with them and that got me thinking well 
why just archdevils? Indeed, why not introduce that kind of technology into the setting that I want to run? And and this, I think, is really, it plays into the setting. If you have a lot of magic items around, then players will start to, to associate, you know, that high magic feeling with your adventure. And if your players are looting lots and lots of magic items and nobody else in the world seems to have magic items, they're going to be a lot more powerful than everybody else. And if you're fine with that, that makes sense. But mm-hmm. to me, something just grates in the back of my mind. Well, why don't other people have it? Yeah, I agree. And that's it exactly bugs me as well. And my players are probably seeing me as very stingy. <laughs> and perhaps rightly so. I've probably built up a maybe a misaligned expectation of this being a world of whimsy and and magic, but then why haven't I got my plus one longsword yet, Danilo? Sorry, but it's very much that. If it was easy, everybody would do it. <laughs> and it clearly everybody isn't doing it because there's loads of monsters around. So <laughs> so it can't be that easy. That's why you guys are here. <laughs> that balance for me is is tricky. I'm one I, I'm one I still struggle with, and I, and I must admit... I've not homebrewed any magic items from the ground up. All I've been brave enough to try so far is taking one that already exists and putting my own, spinning it, maybe adding something and then taking something away. And I think that is actually how I would recommend going about homebrew for the first time. This is something that in engineering we call benchmarking. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's something that I really i'm a huge fan of i don't like to trust my own judgment until Mm -hmm. i feel like it's been substantiated with you know results so if you want to make you know your own magic item take one that exists take a little spin in fact what i want to design and and i might i might end up publishing it on dm's guild i might just keep it for myself um (laughs) (laughs) but um are performance enhancing drugs for dnd You know, I, I had an idea because the, the world that I wanted to run is a gritty world, a dark mm-hmm. fantasy kind of world. And mm-hmm. I think having performance enhancing drugs is really builds that atmosphere. For sure. And a lot of people, me included, the first thing you think about are magic items for fighters, magic items for wizards. But I mm-hmm. thought, what if there were performance enhancing drugs for monks? Things that allow them to expand their key abilities. Mm. There are trade-offs, withdrawal symptoms, mm. downsides to using them. That's this kind of thing that I, I want to get into, you know, in the future. Yeah, that reminds me that games like Fallout has a drug addiction side to it that I think is a bit not half baked, but maybe three quarters baked in that the payoffs aren't particularly bad. I think that designing a really good performance-enhancing drug scheme would be, A, very challenging, but because of that, really quite interesting to get to that nitty-gritty of, you know, how how much is a key point worth versus how much of this can he inject before it's game over is really quite an exciting concept to approach. I'll be, yeah, interesting to to see what the output of that is to see what kind of form it takes. You're absolutely right when you mentioned approaching magic items from what does the wizard in my party want and when i'm designing my campaign it feels a little bit defeatist i'm not sure is the right word a little bit pandering to just say let me put in this dungeon loot that my players would want because it feels a bit disingenuous i have to say that why would this dragon's loot have 
a plus one longsword for the fighter and a wand of magic missiles for sake of argument for, for someone else when why wouldn't it have something for a monk which isn't in my party and where's the line there between i want to keep it fun for my players but i want to keep the world congruous kind of the suspension of disbelief oh of course we open this dragon's horde and of course there's those boots that i've been asking the dm for for five <laughs> months <laughs> like yeah i know sorry but i didn't know how else to give you them so that's something i struggle with and hands up is probably why i've been maybe more stingy than i have because i always wait for the perfect moment to use an analogy it would be like playing overwatch and never using your alt because you're waiting for the six bomb and it just never comes <laughs> yeah so i don't know how you've approached that problem of loot allocation i suppose you might be digressing somewhat but it's a really juicy topic well <laughs> i started off my adventure you know before i ran the first session i said this is going to be a low magic setting so if you are expecting lots of magic items, you're not going to get it. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> That saved me and, and my players a lot of <laughs> disappointment, I think. Yes. But aside from that, there is definitely you know, a school of thought that giving your players what they want versus you know random tables or mm. what would make sense for that monster, you don't necessarily have to give your players what they want. Sometimes mm. they... You know, they're like, oh, yes, this is going to make me a lot better at fighting, and and this is what I want. Sometimes the magic item will open up avenues for your character that you weren't expecting or Mm -hmm. Mm. might produce interesting conflict. And so, at least for me, I don't think to myself, I need to give my players what they want, or I need to design the magic items for them. In my Mm. particular case, I have, or I plan to design magic items for certain characters because they have sponsors. So for example, my monk is part of a monastic tradition. And Mm -hmm. as part of their training, as part of their assignments, this is a shadow monk. So this is not your typical, you know, do-gooder monk. This is a bit of a Mm -hmm. shadowy organization. They might supply my monk with performance-enhancing drugs. (laughs) For for sake of argument, you might say, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So in that sense, they have a sponsor, and that sponsor Mm. will give them things to make them better at what they want to do. That's one Mm. way of weaving in magic items that are tailored towards your character. But at the same time, there's absolutely nothing wrong, I think, with random magic items, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense both ways. And I I really think that's a really elegant solution and one I'm kicking myself for not having introduced myself, my, my guy's have made friends with some pretty powerful people on both sides of the the moral metronome. So there's no reason why they wouldn't be like, okay, here's something that will help you out, which is the perfect solution to my question earlier of, I want to give them something they like, but I don't want it to be contrived. So yeah. at the very least, I've learned something from today. So I'm super stoked. <laughs> One thing that we're approaching now is we've talked a bit about the kind of mechanical design, and I think we I want to touch on that again later on, but what we're kind of working our way towards now is narrative design. So what makes a good campaign is my question to you, <laughs> as, as nice and big and vague as, as a question can be. Well, it, it, it is a tough question. Conventional wisdom says 
your story is good if it revolves around your players, mm. right? Now, it is true. It is good. You know, people want their, imp- their actions to have impact on the world. They want to feel like they matter. How you go about doing that, you know, if you have your own ideas about the world or, or about plot ideas is a challenge. My system is I have moments in my head and I, I know that some of my players might might listen to this podcast, so I don't want to give anything away uh, about the future yeah. <laughs> of my campaign. But but one thing that's already happened in, in, in my campaign is they fought a demon in the basement of a church. Mm-hmm. And that entire encounter came from this, I don't know, a vision, a, a fever dream, if you will, <laughs> that, I, that I had of a corpse being possessed and this, the room is full full of these of corpses that are that mm. are swaying and there's a gem on the wall and it is powering everything and it's a terrible terrible dark desperate mm. affair mm-hmm. i took this moment and i said okay how do i turn that into a combat encounter so i, I looked up demons because i i had an idea that you know maybe I, i'd like a, a demon to be involved mm-hmm. and I, I built that combat encounter around there and i thought to myself well why does that creature exist how did it get there from that encounter I developed a, a faction, okay? And, and that faction is going to have its own goals, right? And, and I try to keep it vague mm-hmm. because the, the second part is integrating it with your players' character backstories. Mm-hmm. So one aspect of my campaign is a bit of a political conflict between powerful parties. And my monk, for example, their monastery is all about ingratiating themselves with powerful people. They do espionage for them. They do espionage on them, you know, for their own purposes, in addition to helping, you know, nobles achieve their own goals. Mm -hmm. While it's not directly related to to that combat encounter that I mentioned, there are other combat encounters, there are other social encounters that I had envisioned for certain factions, and I start to tie that into the monastery's goals you know how do the monastery's goals affect the plot points that i had already in my head Mm -hmm. and to try to do that for every character's backstory as much as possible if they're a monk their monastic tradition their rivals their allies how can we tie those in to existing factions within the world existing events and players are very inventive. They'll come up with richly detailed backstories if you let them, if they want to, if they have interest. They'll come Mm -hmm. up with interesting rivals and interesting allies. You take those ideas and you work with them while they're developing their characters. So I I don't like to have people come to the table with set-in-stone character ideas that are, that's it. They're they're, Mm -hmm. never going to change. I like to work with them during the character creation process to integrate it every step of the way into whatever I have. Mm -hmm. That way, the adventure is very much tied to the character's goals, what the characters care about. And Mm -hmm. so they want to change those things. They want to Mm -hmm. impact it. And Mm -hmm. that's the crux. And as, as soon as you let them impact it, as soon as you let them change things, let them succeed... Let your villains and other NPCs react to what they're doing. Change their plans to focus on what what the players are doing. I think that's that's the key to an enjoyable campaign for your players, and hopefully also for yourself. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really good advice there, and really well put. I have to say, 
that particular example you gave of the demon fight underneath the church and then you kind of built up from there it's a kind of bottom up design approach i suppose rather than a top down and i must admit that's one that i also take as a bottom up of here's a cool idea now let me think about what that means one level up and now let me think about what that means the next level up and so on and so on and then that's quite easy well easy is not the right word it enables you to be able to stitch it in to the higher levels if you've got a agnostic core of a an encounter then you can stitch that in where it makes sense and where it's most enjoyable what i probably didn't do as well as as yourself is maybe i I offered to work with my players but they were all as i said most of them were were very new so even something like we're going to do a low magic or a high magic would mean very little to them because they've got no frame of reference i've asked them a number of times i think about think about your like you've all got family right who are they simple question because then i can lean on that and bring it in and have that impact the the Mm -hmm. the fate of the universe but i think my players are maybe slightly less forthcoming in that maybe slightly intimidated by it was it was tricky enough to come up with this person let alone you're asking me to come up with three four five more so it depends on the players i think there's a bit of a balancing act there and the level of work you have to do as a dm might might shift or the nature of that work changes depending on the player's intent. Guess what I'm trying to say is how you design the campaign changes based on the players you have at the table, which now I've said it plainly, it's completely obvious. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like an idiot for having to say it, but that's just (laughs) where my thoughts have have brought me. Yeah, the the realization that you've made is is a true one. And, And it sounds obvious, but when people actually hear that advice, implementing it from... Okay. Designing for my players. Great. Mm. How you actually go about doing that is is a bit more challenging. Mhm. I'm again a bit reactive in this instance, so I've I've had a couple of chapters or arcs which were divorced from any particular background which I've started the process of writing them up to eventually be released, but damn my analytical perfectionism whether it would actually ever get done or not, I don't know, but uh <laughs> because there's no hard ties to any characters' backstories, but a, a number of them do. And I, I did make that as quite a high priority to be like, no, no, please do give me something because I want to make a thing out of it because I'm fully committed to that idea of it being a bigger payoff, basically, down the line that, oh, hey, that's that's something that I put in the story uh, from the player's perspective. Yeah. I know him because I wrote that on a piece of paper and sent it to my DM two years ago. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And one thing to note is that as a player, if you're new, well, first of all, the character sheet gives you a few things to work with. It suggests that you have a backstory. It suggests that you have a rival and an ally. And, and honestly, whatever else you'd like to add in is between you and your DM. However, you don't have to add it in all at the beginning. It, it <laughs> The earlier you add it in, the easier for the DM, for sure. For sure. Gives yeah. more time to plan and whatnot. But if you're comfortable with it, if your DM is comfortable with it, then you can add it in as you go along. And and that, in some ways, makes things easier because you look at the existing plot elements and you say, well, wouldn't it be nice if I had a brother who worked in the Thieves Guild, you know? And mm-hmm. then, just like that, mm-hmm. you have the DM's existing world and you say, you know, I want a part of it. I want a piece of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something I might bring up with my players to say, 
Nothing's precious. The world is here for you and me. So make use of it. Yeah. Don't feel like you guys are having to design your own microcosm universes just to appease me. The whole point right. is that you're in the world. I have to say they're talking of design and I've, I've ragged on it before is the character sheet is again quite intimidating and although it does have ideals bonds traits and flaws which is something i stress to every new starter i say hey forget the numbers for a second quite there prominently on the first page is what don't you like nothing to do with numbers nothing to do with dice just what does your dude not like what does your dude strive to make better so that is good and there is i think on the second page a bit about allies and enemies but in terms of i think you have to be a of a certain mindset to come to the choice of these things yourself and if you're not then you can be lacking when it comes to yeah but my brother in the feeds guild or oh, i don't know I, that thought never even never even crossed my mind and it might not even ever cross my mind during the whole course of the campaign mm-hmm. unless the dm says something but there's limits to what you can put on a piece of paper and i can't put every tom dick and harry to say <laughs> you know who's your uncle who's your auntie who's your uncle's brother and right. it would get ridiculous sadly uh, there was a tragic fire and they all died <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly that's the, the the get out of jail free card that's a tricky one but a uh, very interesting from a, a thought experiment point of view to say you know it'd be it'd be good to see data sets of how many times did new players tie in their family to their backstory versus experienced players in their backstories how much did they talk about relationships and familiarial ties rather than just vengeance go session one (laughs) Mm -hmm. well my view is that ideals and personality traits flaws and bonds that's about your person internally and your allies and your rivals that's about their relationship to the world outside and i think Mm. one reason that players don't necessarily think of that immediately is because they don't know what the world outside looks like Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so that's where the DM can help them by saying, this is what the world is like. There is a monarchy and there's, you know, there's a king and there are nobles and they have this effect on the world. And there are merchants who are very powerful. And this is how they affect daily life. There are thieves guilds and there are this and there are that. And to sort of give them ideas to say, okay, well, my character had a nasty run in with one of those guilds. And that's mm. boom, rival right there. Yeah. I completely agree, and in the same breath, I'm going to say I'm intimidated by really well-thought-out backstories, <laughs> because one of my players gave me like a page, and in my immediate thought, wrongly, was not, this is great, it was, oh god, I really hope I can do it justice, which is, which I guess ultimately is a good thing, because you feel like, you know, they've put the effort in, and that they deserve to have the enjoyment of the effort they've put in, and ultimately everybody wins in that situation. So, we've talked a little bit man i could talk all night about (laughs) higher level narrative design if we bring it down a level and let's talk about a really interesting topic of villains or let's use a softer term of antagonists so again we're talking more soft design i suppose rather than hard Mm -hmm. design i'm sure there's probably more correct terms for that but that's what i'm going to stick with so how would you design a good antagonist well (laughs) disclaimer i will Mm. say that i think designing npcs is not my strong suit Mm -hmm. (laughs) as a dm it's something that i'm still learning 
to do. Mm-hmm. So then there's your disclaimer right there. <laughs> there. There is guidance in the DMG on designing a good villain, mm-hmm. which I can't recall off the top of my head, so that should go to show you <laughs> my familiarity <laughs> with, with NPC design. But mm-hmm. my philosophy is they have goals, right? That's, I mean, <laughs> kind of sounds silly to say it, but mm-hmm. they have goals yeah. and they want to achieve them. I yeah. think what some people fall into the trap of doing is trying to account for player actions. What if they do this? You know, what is the, how is the villain going to respond? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The best way I think to have a compelling villain is to understand their goals and what they're willing to do to achieve them. Right. Mm. So if your villain is a powerful merchant, maybe they'll extort people. Maybe they'll send thugs to beat people up if they've been trash talking their institution. Mm -hmm. But they have a constrained sphere of influence. There are safe spaces, you know, outside of the city or outside of their sphere of influence where the players can leave. And, and, mm-hmm. and be safe from the villain's schemes. Mm-hmm. The more you constrain their sphere of influence, the less important a villain they are, which is fine. You don't need to mm-hmm. have big bads all the time. Mm-hmm. That's a really good way to approach that topic of they have an objective that should be impacted by the player actions, but not the objective should be divorced of the players in a way, if you know what yeah. I mean, the player characters. So mm-hmm. they should be trying to achieve goal A, the antagonists and the and the player characters might be attempting to achieve goal B, mm-hmm. and it just so happens that they happen to be on opposite sides of <laughs> of the of the result. I played it safe and certainly have a big bad whose plans and and likewise I don't want to give too much away, but whose plans are very much big and bad <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But dotted throughout uh, in each chapter and arc, there'll be some kind of antagonistic nature. One thing I feel I've done myself out of is a local antagonist or a local villain. So someone like the head of the Merchants Guild, as you said. So mm-hmm. someone who's like on their doorstep, but untouchable in a way. And not just some giga powerful being mm-hmm. that is untouchable by their power level. What I would personally really like to explore a little bit further is an antagonist that's untouchable for political reasons or for social reasons which sounds very interesting and something i want to explore a little bit more on absolutely and and i think that that ties into what i was going to say next which is that Mm -hmm. your villain should really complement the genre of the adventure that you're playing if you're playing a dungeon crawler and you have a super politically connected diplomat who is the villain, you know, maybe it doesn't fit as well as mm. a devious wizard or beholder that's put in a whole bunch of <laughs> a whole kinds of traps and, and whatnots. Mm. Yeah. For me, yeah. my adventure is a bit more of a there is an aspect of, of politics to it and, and intrigue that I'm trying to develop and it is a a dark fantasy and what that means to me is that i I never well not never but i rarely want my players to feel like heroes Mm. i want them to feel like people in a world with other people and Mm. so the kind of enemy that you would have in a heroic fantasy adventure somebody who is pure evil maybe they they don't fit within a more political adventure so i have as 
a replacement for clear villains. I have a number of people who have goals, and they are sometimes in direct opposition. Sometimes they are in slightly different directions, trying to achieve similar outcomes. And so for the players, it's a matter of choosing which of these factions, which of these NPCs do I agree with and do I disagree with, Mm -hmm. and what am I willing to do? about my disagreement with them, you know, because mm-hmm. they, they have goals. If the players don't do anything, they have a game plan, they're going to execute mm-hmm. that game plan. Yep. And you'd want your villains to be able to succeed in what they're doing if they don't have any mm-hmm. opposition, right? And yep. so now it's up to the players to say, do I want to stop this? What am I willing mm-hmm. to do? The status quo is the villains win. Right. And you need something there to shake that up. And that something is the players. Right. In, in my kind of newbie player guide, I put together really high up i say this world i've made is is living and breathing and if the player characters want a long rest every two seconds because they take a point of damage <laughs> that's bad because the enemies aren't long resting they're still doing their trade deals they're still going to fancy balls and schmoozing with the other politicians they're still installing traps in their dungeons while we are sitting at an inn for 24 hours that's something that you can't get from video games. So I think it's a really good thing to leverage quite heavily in D&D, mm-hmm. in my opinion, because mm-hmm. you just can't get it anywhere else. The internet is replete with memes of you come back to do the side quest from level one and you're like a walking god. <laughs> and, and the side quest was just, can you go and pick some apples from the tree, please? And it's like, well, yeah, because you've left that poor old lady for two decades while you went and <laughs> battled in space so that that is very you know incongruous so i think if that was in my game i would very very much relish them going back and the old lady having passed away and her daughter's there being like who the hell are you guys i don't want any apples so <laughs> why have you come why have you come back here and bought a retinue of two thousand soldiers with you <laughs> yeah it reminds me of uh Fable, I think, Fable 2, mm-hmm. maybe, I, I played, where you have to go on this mission in a prison and you end up staying there for several years. And <laughs> my character got married and um, to, to, to an NPC, and then right, right afterwards they went off to this prison. Um, <laughs> and they come back, like, 10 years later, and they have a child. <laughs> and I oh, was okay. shocked. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's a pleasant surprise to come back to you. <laughs> Yeah, and they were like, you know, 10-year-old child that are like, I don't know who you are, dude. I don't like you. Like, NPCs, mm. you know, they like you or they don't like you, They, you know, depending on your actions. And you come back to this child who, as far as the game is concerned, feels indifferently towards you because you've never interacted <laughs> with them. And yet yeah. they're your child. And it was such a shock to me. Mm. <laughs> but, yeah, um, for sure. But I think that this idea of playing with time is an opportunity to give a bit more love to an aspect of the game that i think is overlooked mm-hmm. in the player's handbook overlooked in designing adventures in general which is exploration mm. it's one of the three pillars of D and mm-hmm. yet i feel like there is the least amount of guidance on this topic but one aspect of exploration is traveling across the wilderness for example or mm-hmm. from one location to another and that takes time The better you are at exploring, the less time it takes, which means the less time you give your enemies, your Mm -hmm. antagonists, to build up their plans. Mm -hmm. So that's one way that 
you know, something I feel maybe a little bit passionately about that, you know, make exploration matter, you know, um, and yeah, that's sure. one way you can do it is by yeah. how much time you your players save. Mm -hmm. I've been thinking too small on that scale and, and literally just been basing it on, I've not quite been counting unnecessary long rests, but if the players waste time, then I'm keeping track in their back of my head. Okay, they've wasted a couple of days there messing around, but absolutely I need to factor that in of are they good at exploring or are they not good at exploring because that's going to be weeks there added on unnecessarily to the calendar of the bad guys so talking to bad guys i'm gonna you have to humor me while i gush because i, I recently finished avatar the last airbender yeah. about 15 years late to the party i appreciate funny enough you, me too go on. <laughs> oh wow okay what a coincidence yeah i i thought it was great even as a, a 32 year old man this is fantastic and and uh zuko as a, a villain to start with is great a fantastic character it it just got me thinking i saw i saw a question on twitter earlier that was what should my alignment be in dnd if my characters is really good but they hate it because they find it exhausting my response to that was the two are divorced if you're doing good things then you then you are good aligned and if you're doing bad things then you're the bad aligned in the same way that in, in season one, Zuko is antagonistic. He's the bad guy. You know, no airs or graces about it. But then later on, you find out it's for genuine reasons, shall we say, without spoiling it too much, just in case. Mm -hmm. uh, and, the, and the line he says later on in the later season is, why am I so bad at being good? <laughs> and I, I, as soon as I heard that line, I was like, man, I love that line. I've got to use that somewhere because it just really made me think of, that's just fantastic villain design in my head and his his character arc and his the reasons for doing things i was just thinking like, i gotta I, I gotta fold that in somewhere somehow with that mentality of either they're bad but you know why are they bad and why are they doing bad things and maybe it's for good reasons or maybe it's a case of well, from my perspective, the Jedi are evil, kind of <laughs> Anakin Skywalker kind of thing. Yeah. Because yeah. um, obviously he's at that point super committed to his way of thinking. So I know I've just been rambling on and, and gushing about it, but <laughs> I, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about doing those more intricate villain design. Well, I mean, I think alignment is a, is a conversation in of itself. It's a hefty topic. Lots of people have lots of strong feelings. Mine is relatively straightforward. I think that your alignment reflects your actions yeah exactly yeah when people say like oh you know i don't like doing good stuff but they do a bunch of good things that's a, that's a good alignment to me mm -hmm. from a dm's perspective it really should inform what kind of actions they take right like a lawful evil person has certain rules that they live by and mm -hmm. if they were chaotic they might not respect those rules right in terms of doing good things while not wanting to do it I think that alignment is something that, that can change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Even people who, in the real world, they do things that they don't want to do. If you do them long enough, you start to internalize it. You start to incorporate it unintentionally. And so that is how somebody's alignment can change, IRL. And there's, mm -hmm. <laughs> there's no reason to me that somebody's character would not be able to, to change in the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree i gotta say i'm a little bit not against but i'm 
quite aware that the alignment system is maybe a bit of a hangover from earlier editions when it was a bit of a bigger deal. As a framework, I think it works. As guidance to think of what kind of dude do I want to play? Right. It works, but maybe it shouldn't necessarily be on the top of the front page, would be my humble opinion, for whatever it's worth, especially not in 5th edition, for sure. It's one of the basic tools that you have for, you know, understanding how to roleplay your character, I think. It's, like, mm -hmm. the first thing that people look at, and I think that once you get to a certain comfort with roleplay, maybe mm -hmm. you don't care about alignment anymore, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Maybe I'm naive and self-centered in a way and just think everybody can think the way i think and i certainly think don't worry about alignment just what would your character do in that situation and for me the answer to that question comes pretty easily and i, I you know the more i play the more i realize that the answer to that question does not come easily to a lot of people and that's a way that the alignment can help yeah. did you have any particular topic you you wanted to talk about I think we've covered most of it. I, I think that, and I've said this before, that combat gets the most love, the most pages mm -hmm. in the PHB. And so for a DM, designing social encounters and exploration encounters is a bit harder to do right off the mm -hmm. bat. Mm -hmm. I myself have been trying to work on a social encounter system. Right, there is guidance in 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 the dungeon master's guide, but it's very uh, simple. NPCs are hostile, indifferent, or friendly, and mm -hmm. you decide how they start. The players have the opportunity to make persuasion check, and then you can shift them, you know, one way or the other on a success. And mm -hmm. if you fail, maybe it slides down. Mm -hmm. That is fine for smaller scale encounters. But there are moments in in D and D where talking is everything. Talking could result in convincing a king not to invade another country. Mm. So if you roll well once, to me it just doesn't seem like it's fair. You know, to, to oh, you know what? I don't need to invade anymore. You persuaded <laughs> me once. You know, there is yep. a lot of factors going on, and I'm trying to develop a system that allows for different outcomes and, and has a bit of a structure, you know, based on mm -hmm. three successes is that you succeed, three failures, you failed. It's possible on the last roll or based on your other roles that you end up in a sort of middle ground. Mm -hmm. So working out the fine details, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's quite binary, the basic system of a yes or no, okay, let's go. Mm -hmm. I think that's for one reason I've eschewed it to a certain extent and again, just take it at at face value, I, I just make a gut call at the table how that's going to affect the NPC and, and how the NPC is going to respond to mm -hmm. the players. I'm quite lucky that my players are very forthcoming with their mannerisms and, <laughs> and how they interact with NPCs. There's, mm -hmm. It's very much like, do this now. And it makes it very easy for an NPC to be like, no, you guys are bad. <laughs> it's not, I don't have to do too many layers of abstraction there it's a very short leap for me but i absolutely agree that a everything that isn't combat is very difficult for new dms trying to design them i know that if i had to design every npc encounter with how it is in the book of 
okay, well, this shopkeeper is going to start at a level one. And if they say this, then it's at a level two. But then if they say this, it, it goes to level zero. I'd just be pulling my hair out <laughs> at the end. This is bonkers. I can't. <laughs> I'd just rather have no NPCs <laughs> at this point. Yeah. So I think that's, that's probably what drove me to just, you know, solid. I'm just going to wing it on the night. And I think that's worked out quite well for me. And obviously it means I have to do less upfront design. But it's a very backloaded thing of you've got to do it on the night. I guess it's a toss up between front loading or back loading your design. I think maybe the simplest way to do it is to decide, you know what, it's going to take three rolls or three successful rolls. And each roll is for a specific sub part. So, for example, king invading a, another country, maybe the first roll is um, on tactics. Your feelings on, on a broader level towards the other the other country. Mm-hmm. If you can convince them that they're not just a bunch of bloodthirsty savages, then you know you can start to open up lines of communication between the two. And so, mm-hmm. if you fail the other two roles, they might still invade, but now they're more likely to actually have peace talks mm. and take prisoners rather than right. you know kill them in the battlefield and that kind of right. stuff. Right. Second role might be: Is military conflict needed at all? And so, if you succeed, no invasion. If you fail the, the third one, there might still be hostilities and maybe subterfuge and them working against each other in, in subtler ways. Mm. But at least you've avoided bloodshed. You know, mm. and if you fail, well they're getting in they're getting invaded. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> the third one might be just, you know, on the future of interactions with the other kingdom. If you've succeeded on the first two and you succeed on the third one, you know what? It's time to extend an olive branch and maybe mm-hmm. start working on a partnership or at least a, a mutual coexistence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in uh, that sense, you sort a, of break it into a three-part system, you know, yes. three roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems obviously a lot more logical, but again, a bit of front-loaded design philosophy. But for those big encounters, absolutely required. There's no way I'd wing that encounter on the fly because I'd just be sweating buckets hoping that the next word that leaves my mouth isn't the one that's going to kick me in the ass later on when <laughs> my players remind me that I said it and I go oh, oh god yeah I did say that he wouldn't invade but the rest of my story was <laughs> predicated on that invasion oh well well done Danilo <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay so I think we're pretty much at time mm-hmm. um and uh, which is a bit frustrating because this has been a really good talk and we've touched on a number of different topics and I'd like to have another session at some point in the future where we'll deep dive a couple of them a bit more into the crunchy number crunching side of designing monsters and certainly designing combat encounters we've said quite a lot about how they're a big deal but haven't gone to too much detail and again that's quite a point of contention for myself mm-hmm. so if you'd be so kind I'd think about having a you on again in the future oh I would I mean I would love to <laughs> I had so much fun doing this I would love to do oh. it awesome well thank you so much for joining uh is there anything you'd like to plug as you have the opportunity <laughs> well yes i would love to <laughs> if anybody listening has enjoyed the things that i say and you want to hear more or, or ask me questions or talk about D with me i love talking about D. you can follow me on twitter at studios underscore fever i also have a youtube channel where i talk about the adventures that i publish and i'm going to be starting to make a few design related content what i have planned is creating a new status condition how do you go about doing that i'm looking forward to doing that and of course i also stream on twitch and i love talking to people on twitch if you want to hang out 
If you want to talk about D&D, that's another avenue available to you, and I'd love to love to talk to you. Oh boy, you are a glutton for punishment trying to design your own status effect. I'll leave that one <laughs> very much up to you. I don't want to go into those murky waters. For everyone at home, if you have any other thoughts or comments for myself on what we've discussed today, please drop me a tweet at danlow underscore D&D. Otherwise, thank you all for listening and good night.